Deezer Originals. Hello, I'm Joy Barton and welcome to The Edge, my brand new podcast series for Deezer Originals. Now most of you will know me from the football pitch and maybe occasionally from the headlines too, but I also consider myself many things, a pundit, a father, a bit of a thinker. Over the past few months I've found myself away from sport, banned from the game of love, And I've been using my time to explore something I've always been interested in, the mindset and the psychology of the game. To have the edge, as I would call it. Now to me, the idea of the edge can mean a lot of things. Being on the edge of success, the edge of failure, the edge of change. But on the edge, I feel that's where you truly find out about yourself. It's where you truly grow and prosper as an individual. And on this show, I want to explore that to speak with the people I look up to in the worlds of performance, sport, music, politics and beyond, and to find out what living on the edge really means to them. For this week's episode, I'm joined by one of Rugby Union's most versatile players, Alex Good. With over 230 games under his belt for Saracens, he's won a total of three Premiership titles and back-to-back Champions Cup titles, and also earned international recognition, making his England debut in 2012 and playing in the famous victory over the All Blacks at Twickenham. So let's begin on the edge, that looks good. So firstly, Alex, listen, thanks for joining me on the Edge podcast. Hi mate, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I just want to track back to where you started Saracens, because you started Saracens 2006 as you were in their academy. Yeah, yeah, so I came in at school, finished at 18, like a lot of guys, had sort of done a bit of England under 18s, but not in the first team, sort of the second team there, and I came into a Saracens organisation that was pretty poor in terms of, wasn't that professional. Uh, It was a Premier League. It was a Premier League side, but we'd just fought off from being relegated the year I arrived, we had a lot of superstars, all black internationals, Australian internationals, hundred cappers. Name but, names. Uh, <laughs> we had like Chris Jack. We had, we had Richard Hill, Census right. Johnson before. Some iconic that. players. Yeah, yeah. Tim Horan, uh, Michael Liner, top top players. But it was it was quite cliquey. The work ethic was pretty poor, and certainly the results were poor at that stage. But as a young kid, you're just thriving. You're learning. You're so happy to be part of a professional organisation. And I think I look at Saracens in sort of two stages. This first couple of years I was there, and then when Brendan Venter, Edward Griffiths, our CEO, took over. So and, they and come in call. 2009, Venter? Yeah, so three years after I'd been there. And as I said before, it was, was pretty underperforming. We were very much helter-skelter. Might have a, a good cup run, but we're never really pushing the league much, but had top-quality players. And then Brendan Venter came in with Edward Griffiths and I think half a year before he got rid of 16 players, I think it was. And these weren't average players, generally. these were the top end, you know, highest paid players, the World Cup winners, the, the senior pros in that sense. And he got rid of them all in one day. And everyone, it was all doom and gloom. It was called uh, it was Black Wednesday because he came in, five minutes, gone, you're gone, you're gone. And you're thinking as a young kid, you know, you is this normal for professional rugby? Did you feel then it was a cultural shift or did you think oh, this is a financial decision, this could be, you know... I, I think I was 
pretty wet behind the ears at that stage. I didn't really understand it. I so think. you thought the worst of it rather than it's going to be a yeah, good thing I long think, term. You're also hearing some of the older guys and you know, the coach just gone is saying, uh, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be a South African team. It's going to be you're going to take over. Everyone had a meeting with the coach that day, the new coach Brendan, and he sat down and said, look, you know, you're you're young, you're you're the future. You and some of the other guys, I want to play you at fullback and then move you to fly half and. I see you as part of the future and I'm, I'm really excited. And I left thinking, oh, okay, well, that's, that's positive. But, you know, you hear all these voices of it's going down the pan and, you know, there's no players, how are you going to compete? And you do worry about it. There's no doubt. Everyone, you know, anyone who says that they thought it was all going to be perfect from then on is, is lying because we didn't know what was going to happen. We had no coach till the end of the year. We had no players for the next year. There was no news of us signing top players at that point, so you do worry. Yeah, um, nobody had explained the blueprint that was about to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. So there was none of that. I mean, I think as players, you just like a bit of clarity and understanding, and we didn't really have that at that stage. But I think probably key to that is Brendan and Edward, they did have a clear vision. They knew what they wanted to do, who they wanted to bring in, how they wanted to do it. So the first day of pre-season next year makes me laugh because we had so many new players we all had to have sort of name tabs on ourselves. So we had to go around with these name tabs everywhere saying, you know, who you are, you know, where you're from, etc. The key from the coach was, you know, make sure you do everything together. You try and spend as much time as possible. And you're probably a little bit, as an English guy, or you're a bit fearful. There was a lot of South Africans. You're a bit, you know, they take our place. What's going to happen? But... I have to give credit to everyone who came in, made a huge effort, the 15 or so players, to try and get to know everyone who was there. And the guys who were already there then, in turn, got to know uh, the new guys. There's a thing about warm-up routines at, at Saracens that you do do rugby drills and there's no such thing as general jogging or skipping about to get the body going, that everything's kind of rugby-specific. So it started again on the Brendan. You've, you've been a professional footballer. You know that sometimes you come to pre-season and it's just endless running from one line to the next line, make the line, make the line. Brendan uh, stopped that, didn't have any of that in his first pre-season. He just made sure that everyone wore a heart rate monitor and everyone had a GPS. We did a bleep test at the start of pre-season, so you got your, your heart rate, the highest rate, and then from then on it was just constant games, movement, playing rugby, playing rugby. And for him it was, it was all about work rate. He, he goes on about you know work rate constantly. And it, I think it was the first session we were out there doing contact and he wanted to make a point about what work rate really was. And he's there with his bare feet and his shorts and everyone's got boots and it's muddy and he ran in at someone, tackled them, got to his feet in half a second, tackled someone else, got to his feet, hit a rut, got to his feet, ran and did a pass. And his point was was that you know it's about how quick you react to everything. He did that in his bare feet, slipping around and he said it was all about heart, just about how quickly you want to get up and fight for your teammate. And, and is he the manager or director, director of rugby? Director of everything in that sense. So a lot of director of rugby's might not be involved in the day-to-day coaching. He wanted to be involved. He wanted to showcase a point. He wanted to make sure everyone understood exactly what was demanded of them because it comes back to this effort error or skill error, which was Brendan's big thing. This is what we spoke about when we were at the leaders. This, this for me was the most fascinating takeout from that environment. Obviously, there's a lot more to it, but you were saying that there was a huge cultural shift when this came in, when it became clear to the players that there was this skills error and effort error and there was a clear definition between both. The skills error was something that would be accepted by everybody else and the effort error was 
just not not accepted. It was enlightening for for me as a young guy because you don't only ever known you know you make a mistake, people come down you and nailed, you yeah. shout at you, and it, you know deep down it never makes you feel good, and it makes a lot of people sort of hide in their shell or not not try things at all. And he made it so simplistic for everyone, so they knew exactly what's expected of them. A skill error was. You drop a pass, um, you miss a tackle, you throw a bad pass, whatever it is, you do a bad kick. You don't do that on purpose. No one does that on purpose. But the the problem there is that it's the coach's fault, he said. The coach needs to upskill you. So as the defence coach, he needs to do more work with you defensively. If it's the attack coach, he's got to do more passing with you. Kicking coach, more kicking. And he said the coach will take the blame for that. But an effort error... You know, you don't get off the floor quick enough. You don't work back quick enough. The opposition beat you back in just a straight race back to the ball. He said, that is not acceptable. You will never play for my side if you make effort errors. Simple as that. In a nutshell, he basically said, if you work incredibly hard for me, I'll look after you and you'll play for this side. And it's simple as that. And I think with that, though... Did he deliver that in a team meeting? There was a presentation? His presentation was, you know, Brendan was one of the most intense men I've ever met. And when he said something, you listened. But he just he spoke from the heart and just said it to us in no uncertain terms. He out on the field, he tried to show in you know what he meant by effort. You know, getting off the floor quickly, beating someone back. But he said that was just you know desire, hard desire to get back, work right. Simple as that. If you want to work harder than someone else, you can. And there'll be some people who get tired and they just give up. And we will not be that team. All he demanded of us was is our work right. And and what do you remember when you heard that? Did that empower you as a, as an athlete, as a player? I think at first I was a bit like, well, does that mean we're going to be really bad at passing and really really unskillful <laughs> to start with? But actually, I think it, I realised probably later on, because I was only about 21 at the time, I think it was more the, the simplicity of it and the clarity. And it just allowed everyone to know exactly what to do at any point. I always think back to, I remember there was a study uh, in ice hockey by the Buffalo Sabres. They measured all the GPS speeds for the whole year of, of the skaters. And they noticed that the quickest speeds that were recorded were, on average, when the guys were going off the ice when they were being subbed. And the point was, was they knew exactly where they had to be at that one moment, so they could give it 100%. Yeah. And for me, that's the ultimate in clarity. If Brendan told us exactly what we need to do, how we need to do it, and we had a pretty basic team, but we managed to get to a premiership final that year with no internationals, and just because we worked incredibly hard in every aspect of the game. What year was this? That would have been 2010 we got to the final. So pretty quick upturn in the first cultural change in, in the whole place, lost yeah. a lot of superstars, replaced it with uh, a better team cohesion, worked hard on that and then all of a sudden start to see success straight away. Back to the training uh, part of it. You know, is it true that training was tailored to each individual player as opposed to the more kind of utilitarian general approach yeah so before that it had been very much everyone does this everyone does the running everyone does all the training everyone does all the weights and then you do a little bit of extras after if you yeah. want to but it was whether you were 35 or 19 you were all doing the same they changed that hit between the, the head coaches the physios and the head of performance they tailored it a bit. So if you were someone who was, was much older, who'd done a lot of running, you'd do, say, two sessions in a week on the field instead of one. You'd never do a Monday, Tuesday, back-to-back. If you'd had knee injuries like that, they would look after you in that sense. You wouldn't have it easy. You might do an off-feet session instead, but you'd be looked after in that sense. It'd be adjusted um, for, you, for you. 100%. A bit more bespoke. 
hundred percent. You know, rugby is a, a physical game, and it might even be that some of the front rowers who are taking a lot of hits on their shoulders, their neck, they would be pretty much off contact during the week, so that at the weekend they were as fresh as possible. Because Brendan's big thing was he wanted us to work hard for seven percent of the week. He said he said that I've got you here training for seven percent of the week. What you do the rest of the time, you know, it's up to you. But when you're here. It's intense, you work incredibly hard, and you give me everything. And I guess from his point of view, he wanted to make sure that all the training sessions were, didn't have to go on for hours, but it was intensity level was right up there at match level. You were serious, you were training hard, you were giving everything. And you know to do that, he has to look after certain players and, and make sure you manage certain players. It was the first time I'd come across it, and I think I, I've seen the benefits of it since it's, the longevity of players at the club has been, you know, amazing. The lack of injuries probably in the first sort of seven or eight years was was amazing as well in terms of how low they were. And I think the freshness. You know, Brendan was only just retired recently and he understood that it's very hard to change tactics drastically week by week every time you play mm. or, or get a, a different message across in that sense. But if you can motivate your players and keep them as fresh as possible for the weekend that's the best thing a coach can do. So he was much more along the lines of, if we look after the players, don't do too much, get the key points across, come the weekend, they can fire in, give it 100%, they're fresh, and that's when it matters. Yeah, so they're leaving anything on the training ground. Yeah, and overtraining, which is you know quite common, especially yeah. when we, um, we start to get losses. You, know, you see it so often, coaches try and train you harder and more and get more physical, and it's, you know, as a well, player... That's a mad thing in football. There'll be people who are coming into jobs now, usually. I mean, I remember being at Newcastle and we had Alan Shearer come in quite late in the season, eight games to go, nine games to go, and he tried to get everybody fitter. It was like the lads were exhausted and there was no energy going into games. You know, the boys probably could have been fitter, but that was the wrong time to do it. And at, at Saracens, you're expected to coach each other as players? Yeah, we, we make a big thing of coaching on the field, so talk on the field. I think it comes back to... If you know the guy on your left and your right really well, you know his family, his motivations, you never want to let him down, but you also can have those honest, frank conversations. So you can say to him, you know, like, you know, you've got to do this a bit better or try and do that. And he knows that it's from a friend and not someone who's having a go. Yeah, at you're him. not criticising him. Yeah, and it comes to on the field, he'll be like, oh, get closer, get closer, and talking on the field constantly or, or tip to me or pass to me. And I think because we're a very close group. Off that, the field. Yeah, you can make sure that on the field, all the, like, you know, conversations you have, little conversations, it might be the front row, it might be the back three, it might be just the backs, you can just get the point across. You have to... Yeah, know, everything's words, said to make the team better. 100%. But then, it, obviously, off the field as well, you can help each other. So you can see Owen Fowler will have some of the younger tens and they'll be kicking with him and it will help, you know, advise them on the kicking stuff and do stuff with them. Jamie George might do throwing with some of the hookers. Uh, Macavinopola, very good at his passing with the forwards. He'll take a few of the forwards with him and do some, you know, passing work. Myself with the back three, do sort of high balls and and work together. And I think, you know, it's encouraged, but it's also from the young guys. They want to learn. And I think the key from us is that we all know that if one person does it, yeah, it's great. But if you can drag a few of the other guys with you and everyone's yeah. doing extras afterwards, that's where it's so powerful. And I think we're very lucky there that we've got a great group of England guys and senior guys who they do extras and they bring people with them and, and therefore the whole group is trying to improve and get better. I heard about the training sessions that they're, they're very noisy at Saracens because you've got a lot of voices on the training ground. Is this because that kind of communication is demanded to be a Saracen? I think it, 
it does set out, you know, top players I've come across have always had a, a big voice. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what it's like in, in football in that sense, but certainly in rugby, you know, whether you're a front row, when you're on the field, you're a personality, you're an energy, and you can do that in many ways from your actions, but at the same time, if you can do that with your voice and helping people oh, along, it's, huge. It's, it's massive influence. It's such an underutilised part of the game, certainly in football now. I mean, people talking, I mean, even if you don't, take on board what they're saying you're kind of in a straight line aren't you, you know, you, you've you got that defensive line that you hold as a team where for us you've got kind of units so everyone's in front of each other so almost like a sonar you're able even if you can't comprehend what they're saying you're able to work out your distance from your centre half pair and just by them shouting at you so you can work out obviously whether they're on the left hand side or the right hand side and it helps massively with position so it's huge and I think from our point of view, uh, I said all those senior players, when they have their, their voice and they're shouting, the energy it brings everyone else is a massive. You know, mm. Owen Fowles is one who's the best I've, I've come across in terms of defensive work. He's not the biggest, he's not necessarily the best tackler, but his voice, the, the energy he gives people is unbelievable. And I think our coaches, you know, no problem with saying it, they actually listen to the games with the referee's mic on. Because they can gauge the energy levels of our team by how loud we are. Okay. If we can hear us talking, so in a technical point of view, if someone's over the ball and the referee's, you know, the referee's interpretation of ruck can be quite complex. If someone's over the ball and the ref's saying leave it, leave it, and he can't hear it, the players would be like, Mako, Mako, leave it, leave it, whacking him, grabbing him, and he knows to leave it alone. You know, Maro, leave the ball alone, get get on your feet, and everyone's talking, and you can pick that up on the ref's mic so well, and the coaches know. Oh, there's a life about us. There's an energy. We're there. We want to go get them. We're alive, and that's that's a huge part of it. Well, well, that's one thing we haven't got in football, which I think would be great. Is a refs mic, although some of the stuff <laughs> would be uh, probably not for use until after the watershed. And the technology you use in training, because you're quite cutting edge in terms of the technological advancements on a training pitch. I think um, you, I've read about the drone technology. I think you were on the early uptakes of that to have you know shots of team movement. There's laptops, isn't it? I've seen it with Wales rugby. They had which we don't have a football, they usually tend to take us in off the training pitch into a kind of you know, studio with the screen on and show us the clips. We don't really have the real-time on-side of the pitch out of technology. We're getting that now with the GPS, which I think rugby was quite pioneering in. But Saracens, I've always heard about you, you know, certainly in terms of individual performance data, but also the use of technology. Yeah, I think in rugby, across the board, everyone's kind of got a lot of the, the modern technology now. You said the GPS, the heart rate's been around for a while, the drones, the video footage from big pylons, side of pitches, behind pitches, whatever. Everyone's got a lot of that. I think the key for us is we'll never use any of that technology unless we can explain it to the players and have a reason for using it. Yeah, so it. it's not gimmicky. Yeah, because yeah. I think I've been in environments where we've had all this data of... Like how many accelerations, decelerations, 85% above max, 95 And some of it gets so complex, you're like, you don't really know what you're looking for. Yeah. So the player's just like, oh, how far have I run? How many metres per minute? Sweet, I'm doing well. And everything in the club is tailored for us to actually use it. So we have our sprint distances because the coaches want to measure you know, how reactive we are. Are we urgent to breakdowns? Are we moving quickly? You know, And I think... If you're going to get data, you've got to have a use for it. And the coaches use it all the time. We have it, obviously, very specific for individual players. So we can see, oh, well, he's ran 
100 kilometers, 101 kilometers, and the rest of the players have only done 86. We need to make sure in training we tailor yeah. it down, we look after it. And, so that's and, a load for the week. Yeah, the loading, I think, is the bit where we're very good in terms of when players have run too much, the analysis guy will go and speak to the conditioner. The conditioner will go, right, well, today to the coaches, Goody can only do 3K that's yeah. capped. What bits are most important for him? What bits aren't? And they'll go, okay, well, he needs to do the attack bit and the kicking game, leave the rest of it. And so they know. And then you look after yourself. And, and as players, you don't have to worry because you know the conditioners, the data is there and it's being used so that come the weekend, you're fresh, you feel good, you've got you know, a bounce in your step. Do you feel as a player if there was a case where the GPS was saying you were fine but you actually felt a bit jaded or fatigued, whether it was an illness or the back end of an illness? Could you go in and say, do you know what, I feel like shit today, can I? I think, um, like anything in life, I think if you if you do that like a lot, then everyone yeah. knows that you're crying But you've got a good culture, yeah. so it's... But that's the thing. I think nearly you know, 99% of the time, if you won't go in there and you say, like, I'm ill, I'm under the weather, mm. the, the physio doctor will go and speak to the conditioner and they'll go, okay, well, the weights aren't so important today, have a rest for that, uh, the training's more, just we'll swap you in and out as much as possible. 100% that happens. So, so on your individual player performance data, uh, if you're getting immediate feedback from the technology, do you know your individual data? Is that clearly explained to you? And you have KPIs that you want to get for yourself to, to push your own limits? I wouldn't say there's KPIs, but after every session, by, I'd say three hours after the session, you get an email through with everyone's data. So it's competitive as well. Is this every day for training? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, every day for training. For the big yeah. training day? Yeah, but, so it's three times a week Well, training. you wouldn't get it for like a cool down day or anything. There's nah, no point. Nah, yeah, so course. it's your main training day. It's just when we're on the field doing okay. a full session. And I'll get to the competitive bit again for the big change in terms of that. But you'll get a list of every single person who's trained that day. Say so how far you run, how many sprints you did, how much of that, say you've done 6Ks, how much of that 6Ks was sprint distance, how much was above 85%, what was above 90%, and your top speed. And so as players, you know, now I might just have a brief look through that in the evening because I'm feeling pretty tired. I thought, oh, that was a tough session. And you look at it and go, yeah, no, it was. Like, you run a long distance, a lot of sprints, justifiable. Unlike anything, I think, as you know, as players, you, you automatically you can't help but look at people in your position. Gets competitive. You know, even, <laughs> you know, you look at the, the other wingers, the other fullbacks, thinking, okay, yeah, I've run further than him. Done what? Okay, good. Yeah, and that's yeah, happy that's with it. it is. Yeah. yeah, you're getting data from training, so training isn't just turning up. You know, it stimulates you because you're getting data back from it. Whereas at certain clubs I've been at, but data's been used well, and at others it's just been totally mishandled. You know, just completely wrong, and that's because they don't understand what they're using it for. Player motivation, not being trophy focused was fascinating in, in my research for doing this that it was virtue focused that they don't set goals for the squad which we spoke about earlier goals such as we need to finish top of the league and uh, we want to win this cup there is no direct pressure to win anything in a season is that right? I think it, at the start that was right I'd say we have adapted over time you know, I think inevitable as you said we've won two European Cups we've won the league three times you start to adapt it because now we go into the season and you may not say it, but you know, the expectation from each other, you know, the guys come back from British Lions, we've got internationals, we've got top players. I think deep down 
we should dis- be ambitious. Yeah, yeah, we would be disappointed if we weren't in the semi-finals of the Premiership, if we weren't getting through to knockout stages of Europe. Now, of course, there's massive challenges along the way, and you should never expect it to happen. You've got to make that happen, of course. But I think now it's slightly different. We don't talk about it, but there's a level demand of each other that we'd be disappointed if we weren't there. But at the start, certainly it was the motivation. You know, some people are motivated differently, but at the start it was all about making memories and that was simple. Just going out there with your mates, giving everything and having fun along the journey. And that's what we prioritised. Simplifying we, it down, isn't it? Really, really strips it back. I think so. I think it takes the, a little pressure off. It takes a, a little pressure off the players, you know, because you're going out there going, you know, I've just got to give everything for this game and the rest will take care of itself. Along that journey, you've also got, you know, the trips away, as I said, you're still bonding. It's not like something you do at the start and you give up for eight years. Every year, you know, there'll be five, six, seven times in a year where we'll sit down and we'll judge where we are as a group. Are we as close as we say we are? Are we living our values? Are we that close? And I think that's massive for it for, because it's not something you just do once and you, you yeah. hold back. You've got to keep working. What, what are those types of values? Are? So for us, the honesty, the humility, work rate, physicality, these are these are massive for us. Yeah, They're just... They're not just phrases that you no, throw No, we out. started with three yeah. and then we won the, won the league and we were struggling the next year, funnily enough, and we brought in humility because we were perhaps getting ahead of ourselves. We were believing the press. We'd always been the underdogs and suddenly we were the champions and people were uh, talking us up a bit. And perhaps as players, we got ahead of ourselves. And, you know, Brendan, uh, the coaches came in and said, we're going to have to add humility to this so that we understand that we've always got to keep improving, that, you know, that we are good people, but also on the field that we're constantly getting better and we, you know, we're humble in that sense. So in, in victory or in defeat. And, and that was huge for us as a, as a learning curve and how we adapted during the whole process, really. Well, well, that's the message that I take out from the Saracens group is that, it, you know, the players aren't simply a, a tool for results, you know, that they seem to care for the individuals, not just as players who perform on the field, that there's so much more, so many more layers to you know, whether it be your family, whether it be about getting the outside interest away from the rugby pitch. And do you feel that as a player? Because I think in the research for this, I was added that players could potentially earn a bit more money elsewhere, but they stay at Saracens because of, of those layers. It's a massive point. I think um, for me, I don't have a family in that sense, but you see how well they've looked after my my mum, my dad, my family, my friends, uh, the way they have a crash, you know, so that family... Do you mean on match day? No, no, this is is just through the week, through every week, all year. You know, it started with CEO putting an email out to everyone saying, is there anyone you know here who's perhaps struggling a bit or is down or we can help as a club? And someone wrote back, uh, there was a guy who'd had his, uh, he'd just done his ACL for the second time, struggling at home, and they said perhaps his wife might be struggling a bit you know it's the burdens you've got three kids he's a bit down he's not playing he's, you know you've got players are like when they're not playing yeah, a bit miserable murder, yeah. um, carnage. and so the club just paid for her and a couple of friends to go on a spa day for the day and they looked, got someone to look after the kids and it started at that and then we built it up to I said the creche where three times a week all the players can put their kids into the creche 
and halfway through the day you're coming back from uh, the gym and you just see the dads with their kids in like a Batman outfit so, and they play with them for a bit and they go back to training and the kids are in the creche and then the mums come at, after lunch and they've had the whole morning off and they look after them that way. It might be the owners helping them out with holidays so you can stay at some of the owners' houses, you know, just to you know, help your make sure you have a nicer experience on holiday or be looked after. It might be that someone to book your holidays to help you. Just small things in that sense. And then around the club, you know, like I said, the personal development plan, making sure that if you're interested in accounting, they'll go the extra mile, Dave Will and others, to find you a company who are happy to let you learn and go to that placement and perhaps study or whatever it is, you know, making links with universities. It's that constant welfare you know the wives and girlfriends have a coffee morning i think every week just to you know club go and pay them to have coffee cakes whatever and just look after themselves and help them out and there's so many different benefits like that around the place Sounds like they just care about the people just find different ways of caring about the people not only the people that play rugby the people that are directly affected by the club whether it be family members children etc etc well, you know you said before you know perhaps they can get paid more elsewhere but i think there's that motivation as well you mentioned is if you're looked after incredibly well and your family looked after your friends looked after whatever you're going to work you know unbelievably hard for the team you're going to work unbelievably hard to make sure you stay in that environment you know you respect it more yeah yeah you respect you appreciate what's going on you're part of a winning team and everyone is looked after and you think well what more do you need in life the money is a great great thing but you know, you go to another club or to France or something and you just got you and your family and you're like, well, here's your money, look after yourself. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Most of you can earn more money. You know, certainly the international boys playing outside the salary cap. Do you think that's forced upon Saracens? That Not forced upon, but they've got to do something different to stop them losing your own Farrells, your Mauro Togis to your big French clubs who have huge budgets comparatively. I don't think it happened. It was uh, At first it was just... You know, treating the players better, and then they work hard in return, and that was a simple motto of how it's, we got it's that. It's quite work Bill right. Walshy in, in its essence. I mean, I've never heard. Is it Brendan? I've never heard him mm. directly quote Walsh, but it's quite, you know, that Walsh ethos with San Francisco that the kind of score takes care of itself. There's so many layers to their organisation that, you know, you just want to be a part of it. So they turn out around the worst franchise in in the NFL to become, you know, Super Bowl multiple Super Bowl winners and. You know, when I look at Saracens, I suppose you always stand, everybody, all of us are always standing on the shoulders of giants. You try and take as many great influences as you can. I mean, the stuff that you are doing, and that's why I'm so keen to talk to you about it and, and come in and see the environment, is to to take that and try and put it in to my culture if I ever go into, you know, as a player or as a coach or as a manager in, in the future because, you know, clearly it's hugely successful for you. And the key for me is, was rugby had always been this kind of, you know, treat them mean, you know, just keep them king and then get them out there, just really be brutal with it and then once they're done, bring the next guy in and to have this approach which was, we'll look after you, we'll give you everything you need but in return you have to work hard and mm. it was nothing more than that and, and you go, as a player, like, that's, that's pretty simple, really. I've just got to work hard. Fine, OK, I can do that. And every day you go in there, you go, I'm just going to work hard, I'm just going to work hard. And that was all that was asked of us. Look, I think with that, you have to have good people running it as well. So Brendan was great, and then Mark McCall's taken over, and the coaches understand that as well. And so they become 
invested in it. And so every day you get there, it's not just how we can improve you every morning. It's how's your weekend? How's your wife? How's your family? And they understand that the player is, you know, has got a support Human network being. of people around yeah. them. Yeah. And, and they genuinely care. Like they ask you, are you all right? You know, they, they're doing that because they want to know you're okay. Yeah, they're not just fit. ticking a box and, exactly. and going through. And that's what I wanted. We were talking before about the, the key virtues, character, humility, discipline and work rate if a player hasn't got all of those is it a good chance he doesn't stay in the Saracens culture for long I think we've had a couple of examples where perhaps a player has I sort of liken it to a player comes in and he tries to take more than he gives back and we talk about giving more than you take you know look I've mentioned the things that are given to you and looked after and a lot of people could say, well, that's it's easy. People get comfortable, they enjoy it, and they don't work hard. But those people don't tend to stick around in a way because... Well, usually if someone gives something, you, if you're the right kind of character, you try and give even more back. So if someone gives you something, if you've got a correct nature in an environment, you always try and give way more back than you've ever received. I mean, it, it, that's unique. That's not an, that's not normal. It takes hard work and and perseverance, and also a great commitment to keep that going for as long as you have. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's not everyone is in that boat, and like any organisation, there's there's a lot who do, but some who don't, and you have to drag them along with you. Um, and we're not saying that the way we do it is the only way. There's many ways to it's just be your successful. Way. It's just the way we do yeah. it, and we're willing to learn and and try and improve from others all the time. Does sharing and debate about philosophy help team bonding? So it's David Jones again who runs that. He's got uh, eight degrees, he tells me. So he's uh, all legit. Yeah, no, he hasn't been given any. I don't think he's not a Van Wilder type, that's for sure. But no, he uh, he runs a philosophy club, which is it's amazing that the feedback and I think just to to get us to think on another level and a bit deeper, I think is is brilliant. And I think it does help the players because you see whether it's a vulnerability or an openness from players to really discuss you know, what it's, deeper meanings or how they really feel about topics, I think it's brilliant. So I think that's had a massive influence. That's just one of the aspects. You know, We have people who come in and do two talks from champion jockeys to Kevin Dutton who's worked with psychopaths. Alastair Campbell's come in and he's talked very deeply about you know, depression and things like that. We've had guys talk about just gambling we've had uh, Matthew Sides come in you have many different people who can who give you a different outlook on life give you a real discussion point and get get us thinking a bit past so, the so what would they do come in give a set do like a speech a, a set piece you would discuss it with them afterwards or you go away and discuss so, it in groups it depends sometimes it's just a talk so AP McCoy just talks so it's highs lows it's career it's setbacks and you have just a key message and we all sort of ask questions afterwards Q and A, yeah 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 but then he'll be around for half an hour and your guys will sit around have a coffee with him chat to him a bit other times it will be so I think when Kevin came in we discussed it with him had questions and then broke up into little groups and, and chatted about it a bit in that sense. And just the you know, the, the wide eyed amazement, you know, he's talking about some of the worst humans in history as you think. And actually underlying you know what makes them psychopaths and everything is actually quite intriguing. In a uh, way. And do you find it helps with team cohesion? Well I think one of the big things we try to do is you know when people talk about, oh yeah, let's just have a coffee together and, and it's sort of like forced fun or 
when Brendan first came in, we'd have these sort of barbecues and kids' entertainment and bouncy castles and all the families would come together and it was a bit like organised fun. And you know how many times you've done that, we go bowling and you're like, oh God, do we have to go? I think the first few times everyone's like, oh God, it's compulsory fun, here we go. But after sort of four or five times, you realise like you're with your mates, you enjoy it, the families are bonding, having fun with each other and you start to enjoy it a bit more. And so I think with these... We've had times where we've been at lunchtime and the easy thing this day and age, and I think this is really important, is everyone gets on their phone at lunch and you chat a bit, but especially younger boys, they're always on the phones. And David's brought in these things where it'd be like a dice and you roll a dice on the table and it'd be a discussion point. It could be, uh, what's your deepest fear? And it sounds like quite a deep, but I think when everyone says, oh, you have a quick coffee and stuff, you talk about, oh, hey, Ben, you're all right, yeah, yeah, you get your hair done, sweet, yeah, what are you watching tonight? You know, nothing really deep but as soon as you go i always say if as soon as you put yourself out there a bit and you say like my deepest fear is uh, not achieving my potential and people saying to me that he was very talented but he didn't make the most of it people go oh bloody hell like he's he's being serious he's putting himself out there and you show a bit of vulnerability etc and then they go oh my biggest fear is um you know not providing for my family or something and then you start to have a real deeper discussion so to add some layers to, yeah. to the human and, being yeah. and, and people might say that's a bit intense for lunch but this isn't like every week this might be once a month and you just start discussing things like that or well uh, i i, I, I read that you discussed descartes in the philosophy group do you accept his argument about the human mind is a spiritual substance distinct from the physical body do you accept descartes view that the mind and uh, and body are Separate? Wasn't in that philosophy. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you've done me there. No, didn't get that question in advance. Because I did a year's did a degree. course. Yeah. I did a year of a degree, and every time I go and speak anywhere, that's quite intellectual. So it's not talk sport. Yeah. Um, the first thing they ask me is like the most random philosophy questions, and I'm like. Like, is this the nature of this? Because you've done it, I just thought I'd turn the tables well, on you. Did, yeah, I didn't, I didn't go to that one, obviously, so I missed that. So <laughs> next time I'll, uh, I'll be ready. It's funny, because when I went on TalkSport... So the, yeah, there was a fundamental question, though, like the mind and body. Do you believe that it's all one that you... I think I think from my point of view, I, yeah, I think it is, it is all very interlinked. I, I don't see a, a separation in that sense. I see it as... So, like, so if you die, yeah? Yeah. So if you die, that there's a spirit that's something not of your physical, that goes up to heaven, what I don't know, whatever. The Christian version of it is a heaven, kind of, mm -hmm. or you are your body and your physical matter, and, and once you're done, that's it. So I'm not asking you're an atheist or you're, no, or you're religious. I, I, or I think it, at that point it's probably, it probably makes me sound you know, you know, an atheist, but I think your body is done, yeah. I, I don't Same see as me. It, yeah, I don't see it as a... A separate your spirit, your soul goes elsewhere. Yeah. I just see it as that's your life, that's you. You get one go at it, and that's yeah. that's gone. I'm the same. I don't know whether it's. I wouldn't say atheist because I don't believe in nothing. There could be something bigger out there somewhere, but I don't believe the conventional way. I'm I'm a materialist. You still harbour any uh, international ambition? Of course, I think, you know, he says they don't. It's probably not telling the full truth in that I'd love to play for England. You know, I'm lucky enough to have done it and it was a dream come true, but I don't, it, I don't give up on it. It's the absolute pinnacle for you guys, isn't it? 100%. There's See, no in doubt football, we've that. lost that a little bit. To, to win the Premier League has become 
the main thing. I'm listening. People are still proud, and the World Cup in the summer will be incredible for the people that go along to it. But it's not. It's not. Why? Why, why is that? Do you think? Do you know? I, just the strength of our domestic league. I think. Yeah, I, I don't want to attribute blame to anybody else because I'm surprised that the decline set in, and there is, you know, the lads are still proud to play for England, but it isn't. I think Liverpool, Man United, and Chelsea when they all had that club rivalry, and it was more important. You know, Fergie would allegedly ask. Man United players not to be available for selection for England because it would damage, you know, the the load for them going forward in their own campaign. All he was interested in was Man United winning, and he's a Scotsman and didn't really give two shits about England. Is the reality, and that impacts on, you know. So whether the fabric of the national team at the same time, the Premier League and the power of the Premier League is is growing, and the north. The north of England has a disconnect, I think, with the England national team. We're yeah. in. You know, I, I'm a northerner, but if England rugby union team are playing, I don't feel. You know, I, I know it's based in Twickenham and it's a bit sudden, but with the rugby union really as a sudden base sport, rugby league is a lot played in the north, except for the Falcons. They're, they're the only ones in the north who've had any success, really. Yeah. But we don't have because it's not my sport. I don't have the same disconnect. But then I speak with guys who my some of my mates went to a rugby union school and and they come down for England matches and there's a unity. You know, everybody's working towards the RFU and England getting better, even in the bad period that we're in now. With the football team, I just don't get the same feeling. I mean, it's it just lost that but, connection. But is is that the fans as well? Because you you know you see uh, Liverpool fans would as you said would much rather they won Champions League than. England won the World Cup. I think in, in rugby terms, Saracen fans would love us to win the European mm. Cup, but they'd also love even more for England to win yeah. in their World Cup themselves. Well, and, and that's, I think, maybe it's something to do with the way the RFU, you know, because I know they give all junior rugby clubs tickets and there's always, you know, they support really the grassroots projects where I think the FA do, but I think they could do it a lot better. But I think it is difficult because... As you said, the Premier League is so vast, so big. It's a, a global. Well, the Premier League sits above the FA. The, yeah. the Premier League tells the FA what to do because yeah. it's financial power. It's like the Premiership. And the other way around in, in rugby is England hold the power because they're the ones that everyone wants to watch. They're the ones with the money, and the clubs come second to that. And maybe that's but the, the Heineken key. Cup was kind of sneaking up on it a little bit. I know it's not as dominant here, but like the French mm-hmm. competition, the Anglo. Wales, Ireland, Scotland, you know, yeah, I still think it's a play for your country is the absolute yeah. pinnacle at rugby union, whereas in football, everyone's proud to play for the country. I'm not I'm not saying they're not, but I think if you'd offered them, you know, to play 50 times for the country or play 50 times in the Champions League for Man United, Liverpool or Chelsea, I think a lot of those boys... Deep down would... Yeah, I think playing for the national team just came with ridicule and every major tournament we have a scapegoat, whether it be Gareth Southgate with a pizza thing on his head, Stuart Pearce missing the penalty, you know, Gazard in tears. We've always had this kind of Beckham kicking somebody. We've always had this national disgrace around the football, whereas the rugby lads, I mean, they're having a tough time at the minute losing three games, but they're starting to get that now. You know, you've seen Eddie Jones, he's gone from being the greatest coach known to man to actually a terrible coach and I'm like he's had a brilliant or he's terrible they can't you know there's somewhere in the middle probably is, is the reality of him yeah that's that's the media though isn't it you hear it to zero well, you see that in, since you've been you know it's not been the easiest season you've had you know saying in the past that Saracen's more successful seasons but did you feel like you were getting a bit of undue 
stick at the start because you've gone a couple of games without winning, didn't you? Isn't it? I think um, it's a strange one. You victim of your own success, really? Yeah, I think for years we kind of pride ourselves on being a team that no one really liked, or you know, would people would go after for the style of rugby, and you kind of build this kind of us against the world in a way, and you know, kind of mm. like what happens in our bubble matters outside. It doesn't, and I think it then comes harder when people are just talking about you in such a positive light, you know, from winning the European Cup and what a great team this is and all these lovely things. Um, well, if people say you shit, there's only one response to it. Well, you go, you go work harder and prove them wrong. Simple yeah, as that. put up or shut up. Yeah. And, and, we, and we always talk about what we can control in the bubble, and I think that that's what you've got to go back to. Whether it's positive or negative, what people say, it's what you can control in your inner sanctum, your bubble. And... Um, I think yeah, people can write what they want. Ultimately, that group of players, and we had a tough time, that, that group of players, as our coach said, were the only ones who could get us out of that situation. And in six weeks' time, he said, let's see where we are, how we responded to that. And I think we won um, five of those six games. And, you know, he he demanded a response. And as a group, you know, we weren't doing it to for the coaches we're doing it for each other and the fact that we've got to make sure that we're better than this mm. and we have standards that we've got to live up to and we've got to work our way out of it and um, and we did and I think any group is going to get positives highs lows and it's how you respond to them everyone always talks about the setbacks you yeah, get yeah it's easy when you're winning isn't it yeah, yeah. And, and it's easy to be part of that and everyone says nice things but actually when the, the going is tough it's how you all respond and do you come together or do you just get further and further apart and well you find out a lot more about your culture I suppose during those periods than what you did of, through all the wins you usually yeah. learn more when it's the going gets tough than you do when, it, when you're picking up trophies we usually end on some quick-fire questions about life and inspiration. So, first up, what is your idea of happiness? My idea of happiness? Oh, this was a deep, deep question uh, to start with. I, um, I was just, uh, To be honest with you, for me, it was always um, family being healthy and, um, and being close with them and, and take, not taking that for granted. I think it's too easy to... Um, going, oh yeah, just rugby, rugby, rugby. But there's a lot more to life than that. And I think, for me, family, happiness and health is, is probably key for that. What is your idea of misery? What gets you down? Um, I'll probably, you know, if we go away from just saying um, family again, I think, for me, it's... I said what motivates me is no one to ever turn around and say he could have done more. Uh, with his talent, or we could have done. So that could make have got you more. really miserable. If yeah. So I think if someone, ever, if I feel like I'm letting someone down, um, so I could have achieved more, or letting my teammates down, that gets me really low. Like, uh, yeah, performance is one thing, but if you're letting people down, or they're disappointed in you, uh, whether it's teammate or anyone, really, I think that's not something that sits well with me at all. And gets but you don't me, make so. it effort at us. Skills at us. If someone said, "Oh, yeah, he's a pick and choose player," okay. like, that would that would be like a dagger in the heart. All right. Uh, which person do you admire most and why do you admire them? Um, I'll probably go slightly different here. My aunt is was always my biggest inspiration. Um, she was the uh, first British badminton uh, player to win a medal at the Olympics. Uh, she Give her the name. Give jo- name. Joanne Good. Um, she won a bronze at the Sydney Olympics, um, first of a British medal in badminton. She won three golds. It's unbelievable because Col- usually all like the Asian countries that are unbelievable. Well, yeah, she uh, she lost to the 
South Koreans in the semi in a golden point, which uh, I've still not forgiven her par- partner for because he went to pieces and she was the best mixed doubles player in the world at the time. Um, and then she won three goals at the Commonwealth. So she was incredible. And I think, you know, it's always, you know, you can say uh, someone, you know, Johnny Wilkinson, you know, whoever you want, but to have see someone so close to me, see how much effort she put in, the hours she put in, the commitment, the training, the dedication, she was amazing. And, and yeah, I was, I remember getting up at, you know, five, six in the morning to watch her in Sydney and was so amazed by her and followed it. So she was pretty special. Yeah, class. Uh, what is your favourite book and why is it your favourite? Uh, a bit of debate on this one. Eventually I went for the... We know it's not Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> I went with, uh, perhaps a bit basic in a way, but I went with Cain and Abel. All right. Um, I just think it's a, a classic story, obviously, Jeffrey Archer's a real storyteller, but just the... Amongst the other that, things. Yeah, yeah. He's from Cambridge, so I'm going to be quite positive towards him, actually. Uh, pretty much found him in my rugby club, so I have to be nice to him. Um, it, it kind of, uh, you know, the, the coming from opposite ends of the spectrum, from money and coming from poverty and fighting your way to the, the top in that sense, um, I think is, you know, there's twists and turns, but I think just the story of one coming from absolutely nothing and fighting his way to become something and, and someone coming from money but still having that work ethic and fight to be so successful um i think is it sits with me in one of the earlier books i read um so yeah like that uh what is your favorite film and what's so good about that film favorite film um god it's it's so easy to say um shawshank I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, well, I think my mind fluctuates, doesn't it? It's kind of mood dependent. Um, I, I, you know what? I'll go with um, not for anything creative or. I go with Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels because um, it was the original. It was kind of quite grimy. Class. The filming was done different, but the, the quotes, Jones. the saying, everything about it was brilliant. And I remember watching that so many times probably the first DVD we ever got as well about the only one we had so we just watched it on loop but brilliant film absolutely I, I fluctuate it. between Man on Fire which I think is a great yeah. film Denzel and I watched it the other night it was on I was just flicking through the channel it was on uh, Stanley Kubrick's full metal jacket I mean yeah. what a movie I mean there's so many better yeah, films but it's so yeah, mood but... dependent and honestly yeah. I was watching it and I thought if anybody I ask everybody what the famous film is and if it was if anyone ever asked me and I've probably given multiple answers to that question over the years but uh, favorite song or piece of music? Why is it your favorite? Um, I'll go a bit left field here. Um, I go Ludovico Inardi. Um, Divina- Outside my pay grade, that means. Uh, Divinar. It's the most relaxing bit of music you'll ever hear. Um, wonderful bit on the piano. And can you play it? I can't play it. My sister plays it though, and I remember hearing it a few times, and it puts me in the most relaxed calm mood so sometimes if you're feeling miserable can listen to some of his pieces uh, don't put on a dressing room before big no, games no I don't think people would appreciate that too much <laughs> um, but or Igori by him as well like just to like I recommend just relaxing music beautiful Who's, pieces who is the DJ at Saracens well, we don't really do much music not before uh, never games never in the no? changing room never uh, it's, it's really relaxed some people will be earphones it's a very relaxed changing room people will be amazed they'll be talking beforehand there'll be laughter um some people are pretty intense, but really, we all know that you can be intense for whatever you need. Ten days before, whatever yeah. you want, but it's not going to help you. It's just there and then when you come to when we get together and we start chatting, we start warming up. 
That's yeah, whatever it to... takes for you to get exactly similar to your training. Everyone's different, but if you if you like to be the joker and then go out and, and go incredibly hard, then fine. If you're more serious, then people just let each other do what they want. Respect. What is your favourite meal, and can you cook? Uh, I can cook. Um, for my favourite meal currently is um, beans on toast. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Berry's uh, does this wonderful cottage pie with uh, dough from wild potatoes on top, and I, I made it the other day for the first time, and I fell in love with it. It's like uh, I think my mum must have made it for me when I was younger, and I, and I loved it. Um, it's very simple, but in this current uh, weather, it's very homely and, and warming. Uh, if it was my Mary last Berry, meal, eh? yeah, if it was my last last meal ever, I'd probably go with. Um, a beautiful ribeye steak with uh, a red wine sauce and something else, I don't know. I like that. Uh, fancy dinner party. You're hosting the party. Okay. So you can have five guests. Five. You and five others. Dead or alive. Um, okay. Well, Mary def- Berry, clearly. Well, well, <laughs> all right, so Mary Berry's in there, okay. But she might critique the uh, the meal. She can cook. Well, I don't know. That might sound bad if I say that the female has to cook, you know. So. Well, she'd probably be happy to. Oh, She's she an might, expert she might, cook. She might she? want to relax. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll cook and she can give me a mark out of 10. She can definitely bring a, a bit of dessert with her. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Churchill. Uh, fascinated by Churchill. That's Winston, not the dog off the advert. Yeah, no. Winston. Uh, read the, the book by Boris Johnson about him, which I was fascinated by. Did you watch the, uh, the film? Fl- yeah. Um, Oldman's exceptional. He's a he? wonderful actor. I don't know, he's just something very British about him that we don't back ourselves enough. And Is the Churchill quote of, is, they ask him how do they think history will remember him and he says I hope they will remember it, me favourably because I shall be the one writing it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got so many though right? he's just such a he's unique like, isn't he I think he's he unique. would be good value I mean I, as long as the uh, I didn't have to cater for him all for a whole week because he drinks like a fish from all accounts and, and smokes like a chimney so uh, that probably, would be difficult yeah probably so Church will be there we've got Mary Berry Mary Berry um, I've got to have someone sporting I, I would say Usain Bolt uh, okay. He looks like he'd be a good laugh. He's always having fun. Um, if I could be, like say two years ago, if I could be any athlete in the world, we, we often do this in a changing room. My friend always asks us. I always say him because... Bold. Yeah, I mean, look, you could be a baseball player and have millions more or LeBron, but... Well, it's like 10 seconds and it's done. You know, it's, it's done. a long season. He just has to do the summer, training the winter a bit, and also to say you're the fastest man on the planet. Oh, sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I like um, bolts. And, and, and he has chicken nuggets before, apparently. So, oh, great, great. Amongst lad. other things. Yeah. Um, and now he's living Sprinters. the life of Riley. Sprinters, usually. <laughs> oh, and yeah. Oh, he's, also, oh, he's going to be a football player now, anyways. Oh, yeah. He's, seen he's him on trial of Borussia Dortmund or something. <laughs> I think he's gone for the South African team, hasn't he? I thought he was signed South for like. South Africa? I thought he was signed for a team in Joburg. Fair play to him. I've got like, he, he fancies himself as a bit he of a really footballer. He really does. Yeah. I imagine. I imagine he's... Uh, Too many games of FIFA, I think. Yeah, he's got ahead of himself, I think. To be uh, fair, if, if he gets the right service and there's a bit of space to gallop into him, so he'll be on to him. But it'd be great. He, he won't be able to finish his dinner, I'll tell you. So you've got two more guests yeah, to get in. I'd still so take, got Churchill, I'd, Mary I'd still Betty. i Kante. I mean, you're not saying for the dinner. But, <laughs> you can't have... Yeah. yeah uh, I would go Mickey Flanagan. All right. He's, he's hilarious. Yeah. He'd bring entertainment. I think he would... Uh, he hasn't been into Saris, has he? No, he hasn't, no. Got to get him um, in. Mickey Flanagan, I think he's, a, he's so he's funny. funny, and I think he wouldn't care who was at dinner. He'd be he'd take the Mick out of Churchill. Churchill would go back in. He'd be <laughs> he'd be telling Mary Berry about her scones or something. He'd be getting into her, so you know he wouldn't care, wouldn't hold back. And then um, thought another female. I went. Um, I like a good rogue Aussie, uh, so I went Margot Robbie. 
a bit of glamour. Um, bit apparently, of apparently, she likes a night out in Clapham as well. So Wolf of Wall she, Street, Margot yeah, Robbie. Exactly. So she's not afraid to sink a few pints um, and have a bit of crack. So I, I think that'd be all right. It's uh, yeah, she's got a bit of history, a bit of humour, bit of everything there. Yeah, I thought full spectrum. Last but not least, what is your favourite quote? Um, the one that I heard, which has stuck with me for about eight years or so, was by Kevin Sinfield, actually. And he said, he had talked with England a long time back. The legendary Kevin Sinfield. I know, I thought this, you'd appreciate this. And he, he's a wonderful guy. And he said, it's, um, it's what you do when no one's watching that matters. And it's not you know, only quotes being out there, but I thought it, it resonated with me massively. Because my favourite sort of poem was always um, the man in the... Man the glass, is it? No, man, man, yeah, man the glass. Yeah. Man the glass. Wait, it's in poem. Wayne Bennett's book. I got it from there. Yeah, never. Um, I put it in my autobiography because I got it yeah. from uh, Wayne Bennett. Yes, yeah, phenomenal. I, I poem. think it's an amazing poem. Uh, I heard that sort of later, but the same thing in a way. In that you know, it's so easy. I think for people to work hard when there's someone watching you, there's a trainer there, you're competing with other people. It's easy. Well, if when they're all on Instagram and Facebook and all, but if you're training on your own. And you've got to make that line. You've got to do that extra rep. It's easy to just go, I won't do that one. Mm. I'll cut it short. And that sort of resonated with me. Um, you know, and I thought that was, was very powerful. And um, I think it's so important. You, you know, as I said before, Brendan said we were at the club for 7% of the time. That 93%, you're going to eat fast food every minute and you're going <laughs> to drink and you're going to do you know, nothing that's going to help you and be running around you're off your feet or something like that, then it's never going to help you. You're never going to be a pro. So I thought that was a, a powerful message and that poem, um, you know, I think it's very, very good. On that inspiring note, I want to say thanks for contributing to my series of podcasts. Alex, thank you for joining me at The Edge. Thank you. I've, I've loved it. You've been listening to The Edge Podcast. And thanks again to Alex there truly unique insight into the winning culture that has formed over the years at Saracens, a rugby club that is double European champions and still in the hunt to add a third title to that. Let me know what you think by tweeting at DZUK and at Joey7Barton. If you want to hear more from our conversation, you can find some exclusive extra bits over at Deezer.com or via the Deezer app. The Edge is a Deezer original produced by Pixiu. This was the final episode in this series of The Edge, but we'll be back soon. Until then, from me, Joey Barton, thanks and goodbye. Deezer Originals.